Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast, episode 17, The Livonian War, part 2. I would like to start off this episode with a correction from episode 16. I mentioned that on August 2nd, 1560, the Livonian Order's force of 120,000 men were completely surrounded at Homuli Mansion and destroyed by the Russians. Unfortunately, that was a keying error, and the number was supposed to be 12,000, which makes sense because the encirclement of 120,000 men would have taken more troops than the Russians had in the region, and it's a size force that the order simply could not field. Also, as a heads up, when I record, there isn't any editing afterwards. I run through the episode in one go, and any imperfections are left on the audio. This may change, but for now, please excuse them. We will start off with the end of Magnus's Livonian kingdom. The Tsar no longer had confidence in Magnus's ability to lead the Russian army to victory. So the Tsar sent his own army, under Russian commanders, against Tallinn. In late January of 1557, the Russian army reached the city halls of Tallinn. This was to be a pivotal moment when Estonia's future was to be decided. The city was bombarded with large cannonballs and firebombs, but did not fall. The defense of the city was well organized. After a siege that lasted seven weeks, the Russians once again burned their camp and pulled out. Magnus was in an unfortunate position. Ivan the Terrible was unhappy with him uh, and, and had him imprisoned as a traitor. Duke Magnus was later allowed to leave for Kurama, where, where he was able to serve the Poland and Lithuanian interest instead. Russian forces subsequently took Poltsama and eliminated the Livonian vassal kingdom. Poland, up to this time, had mostly been able to avoid fighting on Estonian territory. But with the crowning of Stefan Bathroy as the new king of Poland in 1579, extensive military campaigns against Russia were launched. The Polish cavalry successfully invaded the Tartu regions later in the year, and a small segment of Russian territory was taken in the following year. Poland and Sweden worked independently from each other in different regions of Estonia. However, their goal was the same to take back land that had fallen under Russian rule. While Russia concentrated on fighting Poland, Sweden gained ground in Lanama and Viruma. In the year 1581, Swedish troops invaded Estonia from Finland, using the frozen Baltic Sea to cross. Under the command of Pontius de la Gardie, after a siege, Rockvery was taken, followed up by several smaller fortresses. Hopsalu held out the longest, but it surrendered as well. The Swedes stormed Narva and overtook its defenses, and its commander allowed the troops to arbitrarily kill and loot for 24 hours. Once Pade was taken, the entire northern half of Estonia was under Swedish control, and the battles were later taken to traditional Russian territories. Russia was now attacked from both the northern and southern sides of Lake Pepsi. Large sections of Russia fell to Polish forces, but a Polish siege of Peskov was unsuccessful. In 1582, the, tru the truce of Yom Zapolsk was agreed, 
and Ivan the Terrible regained Russian towns and lands from Poland, but had to surrender all fortresses in Livonia under his control. South Estonia was thereby transferred to the rule of Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In 1581 and 1582, Sweden pressed its advantage and its forces won victories throughout Ingria up to Lake Ladoga. In 1583, at the estuary of the Pliusa River, a truce was signed between Sweden and Russia as well. This allows Sweden to maintain control over northern and western Estonia, as well as territory in Ingria. The Livonian War was finally over. A short break occurred in fighting, and a balance of power was achieved. But it was unfortunately temporary. Estonia remained divided between the kings of Poland, Sweden, and Denmark. With all the different rulers in Estonia, little commonality could be found in administrative practices. Therefore, Estonian territory experienced even deeper division than during the days of the old Livonian order. Estonia under the Three Kings After the surrender of the Livonian order and the Archbishop of Riga to the King of Poland, the Livonian nobility demanded that their privileges remain unchanged. Named after the king, the Sigismund August privilege restored the nobles' former estates and permanently fixed serfdom to the peasants. The Lutheran faith was to remain unchanged as the official religion, and all offices were to be filled by Germans. Through the entire Livonian War, the local nobility demonstrated that they were untrustworthy. Therefore, the King of Poland decided that Livonia should be more closely tied to Poland. So a decision was made to Polonize Livonia, and that started with an administrative shakeup and started appointing Polish and Lithuanian nobles to leading posts. Land was divided into three prefectures, and they were the Tartu, Pernu, and Sesis prefectures and a prefecture was appointed for life by the king to each individual region. The prefect's power were mainly, mainly limited to leading the nobles' cavalry. In 1589, the prefectures were renamed duchies, and the prefects were eventually renamed as dukes. Prefects were divided into sub-prefectures, headed by royal appointees that were not subordinate to the prefect, and there were nine sub-prefectures in Estonia. Representatives of the local nobility were, were called the Diet, which also included representatives of larger towns. The work of the Diet was closely connected with the work of Polish-Lithuanian state authorities. The Diet elected its representatives for the Polisium, which was the Polish parliament, and please excuse the pronunciation, but needed to contain two Poles, two Lithuanians, and two Germans. High offices were also divided among these three nationalities. Under the new laws, peasants were not judged by the court of the prefectures, but rather by landowners, and on state lands, the sub-prefects, and the peasants were still considered attached to the land. The nobility class started to include more Polish and Lithuanians, and by the end of the 16th century, their numbers increased to 30% of all nobles. The new landowners oppressed the peasantry in much the same way the Germans did. 
But because most lands were eventually nationalized because of this, the life did get the life did get a little better for the ones that didn't work for the for the nobles' estates. Because of the Livonian War, the towns in Livonia were completely impoverished, and steps were taken to improve the economy, and the economy did get better. Tartu and Viljandi and Parnu rose against rose again as trade centers. Among these towns, Parnu's economy improved the most due to its valuable ports. As a result of the war, old Pernu had economically perished. In 1584, Stefan Bathroy granted town rights to Volga. In the early 17th century, renewed warfare hurt the economy again, and when Swedish troops arrived, the townspeople were happy to be under the more economically liberal Sweden. With Poland's desire to Polonize the region, one of the main goals was to bring back Catholicism. Another reason for wanting to bring back Catholicism was to Poland's main rival was Sweden, and Sweden was Lutheran. Therefore, the people tended to gravitate more towards the Swedes, and Poland saw this, so Poland decided to launch a counter-reformation, which was supported by the Pope who eyed spreading the faith to Russia as well. The plan for the Counter-Reformation was to concentrate on educating the children, and this was performed by the Jesuits, and they were called the Society of Jesus, and they acted against the Reformation throughout Europe. The main Jesuit center was established in Tartu, and members of the order arrived there in 1583 and went immediately to work forming a college, which was an organization of priests and secular brothers living together. And they were led by a leading counter-reformation missionary, Papal Envoy Antonio Pesavino, who visited Tartu in 1585. A grammar school was founded in the college, and it soon provided education for about 70 students. The Jesuits also founded an interpreter seminary in Tartu. This school taught foreign languages, clerical training, bookbinding, tailoring, as well as printing were taught there. The plan was to make the graduates the future publishers of translated books. In both the grammar, grammar and seminary schools, lessons were taught in Latin, and there were several Estonians studying in both institutions. The property of Jesuit of Jesuit college included two churches and several dwellings. The Jesuits' success was based on their ability to exploit local conditions. Their popularity remained low in towns. To instruct the clergy on how to conduct divine services in Estonian, relevant books needed to be issued. The work of translating and publishing the books by college members went fairly quickly. One of the books issued in Estonian, of the books issued in Estonian, only one, a small book of common prayers named Agenda Parva, has survived. It includes prayers as well as texts in Polish, Latvian, and the Southern Estonian dialect. Only a few books from this era have survived, with most of them being destroyed by the Lutherans during the upcoming Swedish era. The Jesuits' desire to improve 
culture through education and book publishing deserves to be appreciated. The Polish era in southern Estonia was cut short. Changes were planned but were not able to take root under the circumstances of the time and brought about no long-term influence. So the Counter-Reformation was cut short with the legal status of the peasantry still framed with relations to serfdom. The Swedish Era in North Estonia With Northern Estonia under Swedish rule during this period of time, Northern Estonia was titled the Estonian Duchy. The local nobility maintained wide influence. The Swedish kings fixed all previous rights and privileges of the nobility. The Swedish state received large estates as former lands of the order, bishop, and churches were acquired. Along with the lands of the nobles that fled Estonia or fought against Sweden, therefore more lands was in the state's hand that, that of the, than that of the nobility. State lands were governed by an administrator in Tallinn, which was the highest local royal representative. Because there were so many wars, the governor also served as army commander, supervising the maintenance of defense fortresses, equipping and transporting the troops, as well as ensuring the cavalry service obligations were being fulfilled. Another important task of the governor was ensuring the proper submission of state taxes by the peasants. The governor did have assistance to aid in his various duties, and these, assist these assistants were appointed by the king. The province was divided into seven fortress fiefdoms, Tallinn, Paide, Rockvere, Narva, Hapsalu, Koluvere, and Lihula. The state-owned estates were administered by bailiffs, who, were co who collected taxes and acted as judges. There, there wasn't appropriate supervision of the bailiffs, and they often overtaxed the peasants without providing any state services. King Carl IX once commented that most individuals who had served as bailiff for half a dozen years could be justifiably hung. To, simplif to simplify investigations into misconduct, Carl IX in 1600 ordered the leveling of taxes in all of northern Estonia. The tithe was replaced by a fixed corn tax, and a number of duties were slashed. The tax rate remained roughly even with those of the late order era. As for the corvée obligation, an example exists from Hopsalu in 1597. A man with a pair of oxen would work 200 days and a laborer 260 days per each plowland in a year. The peasant population decreased significantly during the wars, but the amount of corvée labor did not. So the number of days of, days of labor increased in the early Swedish era. Despite heavy tax obligations, submissions to the bailiff was less of a burden for peasants than life on a private estate. In private estates, the power of the nobility were almost unlimited. When the vassals of northern Estonia submitted to the Swedish king in 1561, their rights were fixed and made permanent. This meant that the landowner had full reign over all life on his property. The state had to apply for the landowner's permission for any activities to be performed 
on the landowner's property. The landowner only had one notable obligation, the cavalry service. One fully equipped horseman per 15 plowlands had to be supplied to state service on demand. With many of the Estonian estates being depopulated during the Livonian War, the Swedish king gave these empty estates to prominent Swedish noble families so they would become productive again. But they, were, but they were only a fraction of the noble class, and the Germans still made up the majority. These nobles formed the Estonian knighthood, which was under its own control and often competed with the state for authority. The Diet was attended by all landowners and was the highest authority of the knighthood. The Diet was chaired by the head of the knighthood. Swedish Estonia was divided into four counties, and these were Haryuma, Viruma, Jarvama, and Lanama. Each county had its own police chief, and he was chosen from the ranks of the nobility. The Swedish king lobbied against the non-Christian beatings and corporal punishment of the peasants. But the landowners cared little and went on mistreating the peasants. The need to improve the peasants' lives was, was stressed by King Carl IX. He demanded that the peasants should have the right to send their sons to school. In Sweden, the peasants had the legal right to sit in, to sit in Riksdag, or Parliament, and the king demanded equal legal protection to Estonian peasants as well. He condemned the fact that serfdom still remained, claiming that civilized people had abolished it years ago. The extensive reform plans by Karl IX pushed for both legal and administrative Swedification of the province. While the king's words were good to the ears of the Estonian peasants, they rang hollow to the Estonians as actual legal steps were not achieved to better their lives. Sarama, and Danish, Sarama under Danish rule Fortunately for Sarama, the fate of the inhabitants differed greatly from that of other Estonian regions due to its isolated location. The region's losses were less than that of the mainland Estonia. The, the Danish authorities enforced the nobility's standing privileges. The nobles formed the Sarama knighthood. This somewhat limited the power of state authorities. But the, Danish, but the Danes firmly enforced the authority of the Danish state in other ways. The influence of the knighthood was weaker in Sarama than that of mainland, but the cavalry service required was more stringent. Uh, of, the, of the total lands in Sarama, two-thirds was owned by the state, and one-third was owned privately. The state conducted reduction, which was the confiscation of land from the landowners. The nobles were deeply dissatisfied and attempted to break away from Denmark to establish their own state. The state lands were administered by a royal vice-regent, assisted by a number of low-ranking officials. The land was divided into departments, headed by administrators, who were assisted by elders elected among the peasants, and these elders were called taskmasters. Departments were divided into smaller administrative districts. The peasants were judged by local courts, which comprised of the vice-regent and secretary, as well as assistant justices from, from among the peasantry. 
The peasants of Saramaw had more right than the Estonians on the mainland. The peasants on Saramaw had better living conditions as well, and this was demonstrated by larger and nicer dwellings. The corvée that was required of the islanders was just as heavy of a burden as it was on the mainland, unfortunately for them. The island received an influx of well-to-do people fleeing the mainland during the Livonian War. Saramaw's largest village expanded because of this, and Duke Magnus granted Kudarsari town rights in 1563 and became Estonia's westernmost grain exporting port. Neither Sweden nor Poland were satisfied with the land holdings in Estonia, and because of this, another war bo- broke out between Sweden and Poland. Poland had, had most of its troops engaged in battles on the state's southern border, so when Sweden attacked, it faced little resistance and took over all of, this, all of Estonia and northern Latvia, reaching Riga. It wasn't long before the mighty Polish cavalry got involved and swung the momentum back into Poland's favor. With the front reaching as far north as Tartu and Paide. As often happens, war leads to famine, and in 1601 to 1602, the peasants are the ones that suffered the most. The, the people were desperate, and some even sought sustenance by cannibalism. Many, though, were not able to escape death by starvation. The battles lasted until Sweden and Poland both decided to invade Russia. When Gustav II Adolf, son of Karl IX, was crowned as king of Sweden in 1611, he immediately agreed on a truce with Poland and later extended it further. After reaching a favorable favorable peace treaty with Russia, Sweden turned turned its attention back to Estonia and Latvia and engaged in war with Poland. Gustav II Adolf was successful with his new front and his army took Riga in 1621 and Tartu in 1625. In 1629, a truce was signed in Altmark in modern-day Poland in which Poland surrendered all territory north of the Daugava River to Sweden. The Seventy-Year War had finally ended with the annexation of mainland Estonia to the Kingdom of Sweden. Saramaa remained under Danish control until the Denmark-Sweden War of 1643-45, in which Denmark was forced to surrender Saramaa to Sweden under the Bromsebro Peace. So, at this time, Sweden was under complete control over all of Estonia. The Swedish era in Estonia had begun, and this is where we will leave it for today. Next time, we will, get a, we will get into the Swedish era in which life in Estonia becomes a little less bleak. Hopefully, an era of peace will follow. Until next time, Nagamiseni.